Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It has been decades since the internet first burst onto the scene and a decade and a half since social media arrived. Yet people remain deeply divided on the benefits and dangers of these new technologies. Can they live up to their utopian promise or will they live down to their dystopian peril? Will they make us better people or brainwashed zombies, whether violent or docile? With me to discuss these questions is Christopher Hutton, a writer, tech journalist, and sociology grad student at Ball State University. Chris, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Definitely uh, happy to provide uh, whatever insight I can into that conversation. Well, so let's start uh, with the question I ask all my guests. How did you get into this? What on earth, and what on earth is a tech journalist anyway? As to the question, uh, so tech journalists primarily are those who, uh, there was a really great way I felt someone summarized that tech journalism is obviously dealing with the uh, presence of, well, technology in society, so that uh, but there's kind of a couple of different ways that I can approach it. In some senses, tech journalism deals primarily in matters of promotion. So, what does the next uh, Apple iPhone look like is a common question that will get millions of clicks and searches. The other ones are dealing more with the uh, social question. So, how does technology form us? How does it build us? How does it change us? And what about the companies that surround these technologies? How are they uh, reforming and shifting around us as well? And are they acting in the best interests of uh, both themselves, their workers, and their customers? And uh, at least for myself, I've been doing this for a few years where I've picked up, uh, just kind of started covering it as a primarily uh, personal interest uh, out of uh, an intern out of some work I did in New York for a client. And I've just, it's, as we've become more saturated in technology over the last, definitely I think the last 15 years, it's become more and more imperative to understand the tools we use to communicate and create communities. Uh, and that's been further reinforced, I think, in how uh, both uh, people groups communicate themselves. And I think that's going to be very important for understanding and studying uh, in the future. Cool. Uh, so while we're on the subject of understanding the tools uh, most of humanity now uses every day, what, in your view, is the best way to explain the concept of what is broadly called new media? What were its aims? What is it de facto? Uh, and what could it become? I'm always conf I'm always a bit conflicted about uh, new media. I will admit because there there is very much an age difference. But I mean, you remember at least like when we had uh, so in, in the internet history of the internet, we started out with a lot of things like Web 1.0, Web 2.0, and like I've not reached a point where like I think we are approaching a Web 3.0, and these are things um, primarily we're we're. It's how these technologies are, at least if we're solely talking about the internet, um, are kind of redefining the way we're doing this. I know I'm rambling a little here. Um, I think to define new media, at least typically when I understand how it is uh, talked about by most historians, they're talking about the introduction of the internet. 
into the equation. So old media is like television, radio, uh, heck, the book even. But in another sense, now that we're almost uh, probably 15, 10 to 15 years into the uh, introduction of social media, it's harder for me to call it new media anymore unless you're starting to focus specifically on uh, newer platforms that are being developed. Okay, so let's talk about those newer platforms. What are they, what are their aims, and unavoidable, are they good or bad for, are they good or bad for humanity? <laughs> mm, I don't like that question. <laughs> okay, um, so, so drop the last part, drop the last part, let's stick to facts. Yeah, What I is feel like... Let, what, all right. So, what is so what is new media in your estimation today? Uh, so, most people, when they talk about new media, at least, um, are typically talking about probably uh, another popular term that you'll often see among uh, some uh, political types is the term big tech. Um, so, this often refers to not to uh, Google, um, to Twitter, to Facebook. Um, and to a lesser extent, you're seeing it also apply to companies like uh, TikTok, uh, where who have developed a plethora of resources and presence and smaller economies of both products, experiences, and uh, people that are basically trying to encompass, simplify, and in most cases, complicate it. Um, so I think, mo at least when most people talk about it, you could also arguably include, say, Microsoft or Apple, but I would tend to avoid that simply because uh, those, both of those companies, while they are essential to the way we operate uh, today, they are also a lot older um, than most companies like Facebook or Twitter. Um, so I would definitely be focusing on the internet companies. Uh, as to, I think, their effects, I mean, the problem is, is, again, that's such a wide concept. We would probably need to start with each one and point to um, how they've impacted it. Because I know, l Lord knows, I've read over a dozen books specifically on the effects, say, of a big titan uh, like Google. Or looking at the start and the shifting of, say, something as simple as the uh, real estate market in light of uh, Airbnb. Alright. Um, so is there any particular so one you'd me, wanna focus on or like Okay, so let me ask it let me let me ask it let me let me ask a question specifically about political social media. I remember uh, I don't know how old you were. Uh, I remember the good old quote unquote the good old days of the blogosphere when that really took off. When uh, things like Instapundit and uh, others uh, became the place to go in terms of blogs, uh, Substack really is a form, in my view, a form of revival of that genre of writing. Um, but it was very much a place where people gathered and siloed. And what's fascinating is that in theory, you think, at least in terms of politics, when people go out into social media, when you're in a huge agora, you could call it, uh, of millions of people, you'd think people would really talk and engage each other. But what has actually happened is that people have just formed news silos, but they fight for their territory much f more fiercely than they would ever would in the blogosphere. Uh, if you could perhaps, as a sociology student, you could perhaps explain why that is? Because there was such, 
I remember when there were such great visions that the social media would bring everybody together and people would become more tolerant and become more open-minded. And while that has happened in some respects, it feels like it's kind of reversed in the others. I So first off, I will fully... So I, I came around to... Uh, my high school years back when I think the blogosphere was becoming kind of a cool thing so I definitely have those similar feelings of like look at all this unique stuff we're building an amazing information economy we're interacting with each other and then eventually those got pulled into it I think like the thing that I think really interests me in regards to I think the evolution of the blogosphere is so if, if remind you'll have to remind me. I think so. Are we? We're talking like say early two thousands. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. The 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 Bush years. Yeah. So I think like the, the that period I find is fascinating. But I think like one of the things that definitely affects um, a lot of that particular content was its shareability. So around that time the primary tools we had to share information at least digitally was um you were either personal connection so i would contact a friend via say uh, aim or uh whatever messaging chat you were a fan of at the time um you also had uh email as well as uh verbal uh transfers things or forums these were kind of the methods of at least network communication uh in a sense, so a lot of those required you to have second or even third degree connections. It made virality a lot harder. Um, and now, virality is a lot simpler. Um, it's very easy to uh, say something and watch it explode. Um, I know, what was it? Last week, there was a uh, minor controversy about a simple graduate student, I believe, in California uh, who tweeted out of nowhere about poss about if he had the chance sending someone back to uh, murder Jesus Christ. And this is an absolutely uh, ridiculous idea in his context, but I think I have zero connection to him. Like, if you were to play uh, the game of Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon with people, there's no way I would know about that, but because of social media... And I think that presence of tools like Facebook and Twitter, we're seeing uh, you, it's far easier for a post or a news story to explode and become popular. And I think it was just because we've developed a far more interconnected and easier to communicate uh, methods that makes both the good aspects. So when we see something useful or we want people to understand a unique piece of policy, um, which is like what we see in a lot of that, or if it's a bad thing, such as this uh, particular ridiculous um, tweet, it, it's far easier to share it and to do it, and also to give it far less thought before we send it. All right, so... Um, do you in agree? A, in addition to... Do you I agree, disagree? Know. Like, what would you... What's your feeling about that? Well... I'll put it this way uh, I feel like and I've said this a number of on quite a number of occasions that social media did not create the problem of 
people starting rumors or people spreading good and bad information. What it has done is, is like you said, is it's supercharged it. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you have stuff like the George Floyd video, which spread around the world, whereas once upon a time, you know, certainly when I was a kid growing up, maybe it would have shown on the local news or something. It likely would not have become a national story. It would have taken it a while. Uh, today, it goes, it goes around the entire you know, world 10 times in a day. And that's a good thing. But the problem is, is that there's a lot of bad stuff that goes around and people um, talk about it a lot when they, when people discuss the, you can see it in the Great Awakening, uh, the phenomenon whereby especially li- uh, college educated, college educated liberal whites become, uh, become far more uh, progressive in their views. Um, a lot of it is about emotional stimulus than really interest in the facts. So commentary, so that was actually the next thing I was going to discuss was that it, it feels like commentary has just swallowed up the news. It's not even a question of anymore of people getting facts wrong. It's that facts aren't relevant. It's that all that matters is that people tell you that you're right and you're good and that's good. And it's not about, not anymore about, well, we're both reading the New York Times and we're disagreeing about the facts and we'll debate that. It's just that. The New York Times has published an article that uh, makes the, uh, makes someone reading on the left feel good, and uh, I don't know the Wall Street Journal or someone else has published something that people on the right that makes them feel good. And I feel that I feel that it's the idea. As I said in my previous question, I feel that um, whatever hopes there were for like this great rational discourse, which has been a great, I believe, a great American hope for a long time. Uh, has kind of hit a hit a wall. It's kind of disproven itself, and mm-hmm. especially including, especially among uh, people who, in theory, right, they go to they've gone to elite universities, they go to elite institutions. In theory, these are supposed to be the nuanced, uh, careful, calculating people. But the 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 na- even if they weren't didn't tend to do it in the beginning, the nature of the internet, in which it's all about that dopamine hit. Uh, has constantly encouraged um, just telling people what they want to hear and not telling people, well, this is the story, you make of it what you want. Uh, And just recently there was this uh, woman who worked for MSNBC who said that ratings were all about telling people what they want to hear. And it's true in cable TV and it's doubly true in social, uh, social media, so it feels like the great hopes are... Not because there was any malicious intent, but that's just because it's easier to get the dopamine rush than to use the analytical part of your brain with all this. Right. Uh, so I feel that I don't think it's a disaster. I don't think it's a catastrophe, but it's definitely a very, very mixed blessing. Right. I I would actually agree, though. I think like a lot of it. Like one thing I would absolutely love to see some academic do a very in-depth history of at some point would be uh, so this would be a basically a tracking of how has uh, say the way we discuss news or thought about news uh, changed not because of say the blog but actually because of uh, metrics um, so like in television I think it's the Nielsen ratings um, for a website whether you're uh, your own blog or you have the New York Times, you have tools that allow you to track um, 
search engine optimization and social media optimization like how much i think those are actually a far much larger contribution to unconscious forming of how we create and publish ideas in that we can now know hey i got 10,000 hits for writing that uh, puppy kickers should go to jail. Um, <laughs> I mean, they should, but if, if that's a metric that we can learn that that incentivizes, then I feel as a company uh, t- more incentivized to promote uh, pro uh, puppy kickers going to jail content. Um, I, I would, I hope, I don't know, there might actually be research on this, but I do think that the and it, this is a problem for both sides because as much as like I know both of us are far more center of right than a lot of people you might see on Twitter, um, I you also see that optimization, the ability to find content that sparks controversy, whether it's in support reading or hate reading, both create the exact same metrics of here's a reader, here's an ad, and here's five more cents for them being on my webpage. Yeah, yeah, um, part, and and part and parcel of that is that they talked about, for instance, if we talk, we'll talk a bit about conservative media, is there, I've seen discussion of how there's basically plus minus a fixed pie of viewers that you can get to. So the more outlets you have, the, the, the way you get traffic is you become more outrageous, you become more provocative, and so on and so forth. Uh, another thing I noticed, and this is as uh, I've edited uh, I've edited, in, uh, I've edited medium posts, uh, and I noticed that there was this metric that I'd never seen before, which was, this takes such and such long time to read. And they, they're even, when you put, publish on WordPress, you'll see something that says, this thing's readability score is, I don't know, it's a red light or a yellow light or a green light. And I think I'm a fairly good writer, and uh, people can understand my stuff, but it's... You talk about TV, uh, and Neil Postman talks about this, even though you know, I have my disagreements about how he has this real Jeremiah about uh, how print culture used to be so awesome. Uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I, I think he's a little bit uh, too optimistic about that. But he talks about how just the medium of the television makes you think in sound bites, makes you think in th- a 30-minute show rather than, say, a four-hour novel or a five-hour debate with someone in university or whatever it is. Just the fact that you break it down into five minutes of reading, one minute of seeing a TikTok video, <laughs> three, seconds of, uh, three seconds of reading a tweet, uh, you don't have that time for drawing back, self-reflecting, um, really letting your mind cool a bit it's all instinctive uh, i haven't read the book but i remember seeing that the there's this book uh, by called thinking fast and slow it's encouraging us to think fast all the time and we lose something by that we lose something by not being able to just calm down a second and you see this by the way um uh, whenever there's a, uh, a report of a mass shooting or a mass disaster, right? Everybody immediately catches on this rumor and that rumor and this rumor and that rumor. And one of the things I like to promote is the 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 the, the STF root U rule: wait 24 four hours or 48 hours because we don't know anything. But but I think that the way it makes us think is not just instinctive, like you said, but it's also that it makes us think way 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 too fast. 
We have to have an immediate answer. We have to know exactly what's going on. The very possibility that we're going to say, you know what? I don't know. You know what? Let's wait a second. That's like the worst thing you can do. You can take one side or the other, but to say, I don't know, that's the worst thing. And that's not healthy, I don't think. That's not healthy at all because, right, if you're a proper journalist, if you're a proper police investigator, if you're a proper scientist and you're trying to approach a subject, imagine if someone, I don't know, put a gun to your head uh, facing COVID-19 and says, okay, give me an answer. What's the cure for this? Uh, an honest scientist would say, look, it'll take me a while. It'll take me weeks. It'll take me months to properly study this, this, uh, this disease. And you can blow my brains out if you want, but it's either that or I'll give you a, what's probably a wrong answer. So I think that if, in terms of the medium is the message, is that it's forcing us to think always very, very fast. You have to respond. And I think that's another thing. It could be very good, by the way. It could also mean you catch errors very fast. It could mean that you catch the truth very fast, but it does mean that everything is very fast, whether right or wrong. And that's the world I think we live in, um, in, our, in our tech age, where that, that's what it seems to be like. Oh, absolutely. Um, I know, um, have you ever read, so uh, Nicholas Carr, who's a fantastic writer, uh, he wrote the book called, the, have you ever read The Shallows, or? I'm afraid I haven't. Uh, what's it about? Uh, basically, it's the argument, it's basically an, a uh, tw more 21st century take on Neil Postman's argument, namely, and he does this at least in a more scientific uh, direction than I think Postman does because he's primarily doing it from I believe because he's a l more literary approach writer. It's been years since I've read Amusing my Ourselves to Death, uh, but he talks a lot about uh, the plasticity of the brain and that uh, in a similar way Google does encourage us to think and approach knowledge differently. Now. Uh, he is very much approaching it from a negative perspective. Uh, the science behind it, I think, is a lot more uh, moldable, and I think uh, the brain isn't as uh, isn't exactly the way he describes it. But he provides a really interesting, uh, at least starting point, I think, to begin the conversation of how these things are changing our brains. Um, I, mainly that, I, I think you're right, I always love the notion of the attention economy. I remember um, when Vine was the cool thing among the kids, um, which... Back in the day. <laughs> like, everyone was like, oh my god, we're going to be down to six seconds or less, attention for everything, plot twist. We really didn't, because around that same time, we also saw a really unique trend in media where uh, long reads became a really popular thing as well. And so, it, there's always these contrasting forces. There's never this shrinking attention span. But what I think the attention economy, which is what you're talking about when it comes to, I think, news stories and media or Twitter, is that the fact that I only have 24 hours in my day. I gotta spend eight of it sleeping, though I promise you I probably spend less than that. Um, and, and I can spend that looking at... Uh, talking with my neighbors. I could spend it reading news stories about all sorts of things. I could spend it argu two hours arguing with someone over, say, what your favorite pizza topping is. Um, it, but the point is that you have a limited amount of time, and creators want to make sure that it's worth your time, or they want to hook you with something, and they understand how to do that to manipulate and get the right stats. And I think, I mean, this... Uh, I think it's worth saying that it isn't just a socially news a new media thing. I think 
Um, I would need to do a far uh, further back study, but I think, like, if you go look at uh, old school newspapers, particularly when there was more of a competitive market, like when there was at least two or three, each one had to make a statement that caught your attention, for good or for ill. Um, so I think there, there's... In one sense, I think technology has made that more upfront because if you're a newspaper, you're sitting down to read it for maybe 20 or 30 minutes a day. Um, in social media, it's always there, particularly through um, your mobile device if you are a user of one, and that's uh, made. And by the way, it's it's overwhelming. It, you just uh, if it, every second there's a new article, there's a new. Th if you didn't have to sleep, you wouldn't be able to read everything published on like just the mainstream sites. Oh, it's exactly. Crazy. Exactly. I mean, like I like a lot of insane people. I maintain a blog feed and I keep it full of everything. And I already struggle to read and keep up with just the headlines alone. Though, I will admit, fifty percent of it is just reporting on something else somebody else did. Uh, so that makes it a lot easier. Uh, but you're right. It just it's there's so much out there. It's overwhelming. And I am a very much an information. Uh, addict. I like to know what's going on, whether it's in the world or in the communities that I'm engaging in. Okay. Um, so, well, if you discuss uh, information addiction, uh, one of the things that's come up a lot uh, nowadays uh, and it's being debated a great deal is uh, the use of technology in education. Um, you mentioned in your uh, in your uh, Substack, you talk about uh, Hank Green. I'm a, I was a big fan of. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, his and his brother's uh, channel Crash Course. And sometimes you'll every so often. Um, sometimes you'll ever so every so often hear someone say, "Oh well, we don't need universities. You know, we can just watch, uh, have uh, massive uh, online courses, MOOCs, or we can have documentaries." But as you point out. Um, as you point out regarding uh, Green, uh, who claimed that you know commentary will replace media, they're basically reliant on an inf already existing infrastructure of reporting. Right, all the hot takes in the world rely on somebody getting the actual facts. All the all the great and there are there are some really good educational channels, which I would you know my my nephews enjoy them and uh, lots of people enjoy this site. There's, a, there's this whole infrastructure of research, boring research that nobody reads or maybe one person reads, puts it in a major book and then it's transferred. Um, do you, on the other hand, it feels like that, that the traditional universities and media outlets are really in trouble. The, you, Every so often, I see the Pew uh, polls, uh, Pew surveys that show that new, uh, that local newspapers are collapsing, and university a lot of universities seem to be in real trouble. And I mean, what what it what would happen if we could imagine a world where factual newspapers uh, cease to exist and uh, and uh, and universities cease to exist? Could would new media have a leg to stand on, really, or would we just really enter into a post-truth world? That is a really interesting question, and uh, frankly, the th uh, there's a lot of potential um, realities that that can go to. Um, I mean, that I'm trying to think. How would I answer that? Like, I'm with you. I think a lot. There's a lot 
of worry to be concerned about whether it's academic research done by colleges or uh, upfront in uh, localized reporting. I mean, the the I think over the last decade, the story of the death of the local newspaper has been terrifying to watch. Uh, particularly as uh, many of them have had to be subsumed into larger corporate entities that have put more emphasis on uh, metrics over, say, what are the stories that locals actually want or want to read, even if it's something as um, ridiculous as a sewing column done by your favorite grandma. Like, that has so much community value, but... It's uh, not incentivized because, gosh, why would the neighbor town care about this lady? Um, right. And so I think uh, well, I am definitely very much concerned about that sort of thing becoming immensely corporatized and uh, reporting resources being restricted or academic resources or teachers. Uh, in the case of, I think, online program, which I love, um, I was actually homeschooled for a lot of my life, and those played a big part in my life, and they're even more important to uh, this current generation of homeschoolers. Um, and, but you're right in that there's a lot of people, there are people who say that we could potentially replace it um, with that, and while I, I am, for the most part, with you on the inherent value of colleges and i do think we need to put value on it there's a lot of stuff that's going on that like over creates prices within colleges that maybe needs to be discouraged or challenged or reformed and that like i i as much as i hate to say it i hate saying it because i'm in a master's program not everyone needs to go to college then maybe there are ways, alternative ways that that can be provided, but a lot of these methods that are doing it through technology, so uh, Crash Course, again, I absolutely adore Crash Course because they do a, way, a good way of being thoughtful and summarizing content in a way that is at least both interesting and doesn't feel um, like it's dumbed down or aimed at a particular audience uh, beyond, obviously, this youth. Um, but a lot of those things are still so impersonal, and I think um, I, I'm not someone who's done an excessive study of educational uh, methodology, but at least the one thing I have understood is how important relationships are in uh, our educational process, that knowing people helps do that, and as much as I like Hank Green, he's not there to answer my questions. Um, if I were to say need it in the context of watching his video on uh, biology. Yeah, uh, it's interesting you bring that up. I once asked a uh, music teacher, uh, I said, well, well, what do you provide? Uh, maybe, maybe it was a bit uh, chutzpahdik on my part. What do you, I said, what do you provide uh, that, say, a YouTube channel doesn't? And she said, here's the thing. You could learn, on, you could learn how to use music on YouTube, but if you want someone to correct your mistakes, you need a teacher. You need someone to interact with you. Someone who has, like you said, a channel that has thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers is probably not going to answer your questions and help you improve. If you have a teacher, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or one-on-30, they'll be able to point out what you're doing wrong as opposed to just passively and perhaps mistakenly picking up on the class. 
I think that that's a, a, an important contribution that teachers make, Dafka, is that Dafka is, 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 a, is a Hebrew word, it's hard to translate, but specifically in this case. Uh, I think that, that uh, that's a ma major and important contribution that they make in terms of relationships. Um, and I think that's going to be something really interesting to watch. Obviously, we're recording this in uh, August of 2020. No one knows how this school year is going in, but something I'm very interested in watching, partially because of my history of being homeschooled, is a lot of parents are trying to pull out are trying to use the online resources but form pods or smaller communities uh, to provide that education uh, resource uh, for the students without, uh, with, while minimizing risk of potential infection. Um, there's going to be a lot of stuff that is going to go downhill in uh, this fall, I'm pretty sure of it. it but I think it's going to be interesting to see how those smaller communities play out in contrast to say the attempts to uh, space things out in public or uh, private institutions and how uh, the digital tools because one of the things I have to admire about just the American economy and a lot of people is how much stuff people made for free like in those first two months of the pandemic like that was amazing and how much just was available for uh, to help people uh, get through and how those things could be used um, in this time and in, in these small, hopefully smaller communities. Yeah, that's definitely uh, uh, a far more positive uh, part of uh, the internet that not many people talk about is all these ideas and apps and so forth that people create for free or for a purely symbolic price that could help you get out of real jams. Um, speaking of community, uh, a lot of I am 100% certain that aside from going to uh, more uh, questionable sites, a lot of people who were stuck in lockdown uh, probably played a lot of uh, video or computer games. And one of the things that fascinates me and that I don't think has really been particularly studied is, and I ask you this not just as a tech reporter but as a sociology student, how would one go about say studying a gaming community for a particular game what kind of questions would you ask and how exactly and how exactly would one su study such a community compared to say uh the community of a small town or even the community of a neighborhood i love this question for the record um because i thought about this as well um i will admit i'm i'm a bit of a gamer myself primarily stuff like world of warcraft or uh, League of Legends are both games that I have a deep uh, love of. I play consistently. Um, and both of them as communities have been utterly fascinating. Uh, League in itself is interesting, mostly because there there's a larger community, like a forum, but there's not as much there going on. Like if I go join a game with nine other random people, not much is going to happen unless they get angry because I'm not good at healing. Um, in World of Warcraft, though, the guild system, I think, is something that's absolutely fascinated me, because uh, you're right, these are these really small uh, communities where I can log into the game and meet with people of a common interest, usually things like gathering supplies or fighting off monsters or preparing for the next raid. Um, and how that both brings unity and uh, relationship... Uh, particularly per of personal interest are like roleplay communities where people create characters and play them for years on end 
Um, I do, I, the thing with studying them, I think, is... Like, a lot of the people who I know in these communities, and many of them, like, they find close relationship, but this is in part because of struggles outside of these uh, communities, um, particularly when it comes to, say, like, uh, whether it's their relationship. So, in a sense, gaming can become a, quite a uniter, but it can also be a coping mechanism, and sometimes that leads to both beneficial conduct, so reaching into someone else's life. Um, I know the game has also played a significant part in the formation of certain people's identity, particularly regarding gender or sexuality, whatever your take is on that conversation. Games like that can often allow an outlet for that, and I think that's something that has been semi-studied in, the, in uh, select literature. Um, but you also see it as just like, I can't deal with my retail life, so what am I going to do? I'm going to pretend to be an adventurer. I'm going to go build an impact in this small community of 25 to 10, 10 to 25 people, where we're going to go uh, get the best score we can in defeating this particular raid. In how these things can provide multiple facets to uh, the humans involved. I, I would love to see some more in-depth research, but I think a lot of uh, academics are like, World of Warcraft is kind of like an old thing, and so they're not paying attention to that as much as they are, say, Fortnite or uh, Call of Duty Warzone, which I do think there's some interesting stuff going on there, um, but it's not as, I think, solidified as you would see in a uh, massive multiplayer online role-playing RPG like World of Warcraft. Huh. Well, so... So it, it, it's interesting you mention that because I noticed some people indeed say that you know they they have a, they have an exhausting job and let's face it a lot of us work work in something just to pay the bills and they they they, they play it to, to blow off steam so it sounds at the very least it's more I mean you might spend too much time on it but it sounds at the very least more engaging than I remember before the days of the internet where you just channel surfed 900 channels and had nothing to watch or uh, or even if you binge watch TV even if you binge watch Netflix it's still a fundamentally passive experience if and if you're playing a game you're at the very least okay you're not conversing with people face to face but you are you know chatting with them and you are uh, engaging with other pe uh, people and you are seeing something new so it might, uh, I have to wonder, is it perha uh, perhaps a bit of a step up than, uh, than the much more, uh, more isolating things that came before it? What's your take? I absolutely think, I think a lot of people, again, when they talk about gaming, I, I think of how um, in, in the early 90s, a lot of people worried about uh, gaming mostly because of their violence or causing people to sit at home. But in fact, when they didn't do that, they didn't. They failed to realize the social aspects of being able to get onto, say, uh, Xbox Live and go play Halo with your friends. I mean, it, I, I've seen people compare it to how, at least like when I was a kid, I used to go over to my friend's house and watch him play... Uh, the latest uh, video game, or I think it was usually like, uh, typically like Mario and stuff. Uh, but I would go over and watch him play it, and it was fun, and it was great, and we could talk about random stuff while we were playing, or ask questions about the story. And I think we are seeing that social aspect of it. The thing is also, though, again, like not all social interactions are equal. So in some cases, these may just be very 
you know, uh, limited uh, social interactions. Uh, one of the more interesting things I'm doing some research into is uh, there is individuals currently on who use uh, Twitch, which I think that's a whole other conversation regarding gaming and community, uh, to go on to Fortnite and to attempt to present the Christian gospel uh, on there to kids just <laughs> out of the chat. It's like, hey, you want to talk about God while we're shooting people in Fortnite? And kids are actually, at least according to the guy who's doing this, surprisingly responsive to having these conversations they're not the most in-depth things when it comes to say theology but it's a conversation it's a meaningful conversation too wow uh i mean i have had the experience i play uh chess on chess.com and i've played with like people from all over the world and sometimes people chat with me and say start well i'm trying to figure out well how am i gonna checkmate this guy so let's talk about the theology on the way but yeah that's that that that's that's definitely interesting. Um, you mentioned theology. Is there any uh, scholarship or any interest in the question of do people try and use, because these are very large communities, we're talking millions of people. Are there any attempts or interests by political or social movements to try and break into gaming uh, gaming worlds and try and say, you know, I've been, I beat the raid with you, uh, would you like to be interested in th this and this manifesto or something? You know, if there are, it's not something I've popped up onto, though I will admit, I've been thinking about, so on Fortnite, there's been a lot of, like, they've been hosting concerts and public events, um, I don't know if you saw that, like, uh, right before, uh, the last Star Wars movie, whatever you think of it, uh, they, like, basically had an event where players could log in and watch like a little interaction with a 3d version of jj abrams and then get a clip of the movie um and it was really neat and they've done a lot of things like that i've just been waiting it's like you know what they should just host the democratic national convention in Fortnite, and it would be great here's a here's a digital version of joe biden you can buy him and now you can run around and shoot people it would be hilarious um but i haven't at least politically, gaming communities, it's, if there are any of these kinds of engagements, you typically see them not within the game, but within the tools used um, to organize gaming. Uh, Discord is a m massively popular tool right now, so mm -hmm. you might go on to there and say, to stick with World of Warcraft, um, you might go on there and you might find a lot of players who you want to engage with. Um, but you'll also find, say, a channel for political discussions, or posting uh, memes about news life. A lot of these websites, at least in my experience, and a lot of them tend to discourage political discourse in part because they know uh, that there will be division. So conservatives and liberals will get into an argument. Uh, eventually, aggressive and angry language will be used, and somebody's probably going to get hurt uh, along right. the way. So they try to minimize that, but I think there are still also communities like uh, LGBTQ communities, which are primarily uh, left-leaning, at least in my experience. Like, they'll right. create select servers where it's like, okay, you have to either be an ally or you got to be one of us to go there. And so that kind of formation, but I think that's less politics and more, uh, I mean, more identity politics, I, I suppose, is a category you could use. Interesting. Uh well, speaking of the question of politics, so this is a podcast, and I've noticed that you, at the very least, discuss um, the importance of podcasts. I'm wondering, 
like very much like the absolute explosion of uh, blogs in the early 2000s and the explosion of uh, Substacks and opinion pieces and hot takes and whatever. There's also an explosion of podcasts. Now, many of them are very high quality. Uh, I, in particular, am partial to history podcasts, as to the history of Byzantium. Um, but you commented specifically, uh, and I confess I've never listened to him, uh, Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your understanding of why people listen to him? what his influence is, and is there anything you can generalize from the Rogan experience, I guess, to podcasting as a whole, or is it too diverse a world to really do that? I think it's very, like, I think a lot of people, because podcasting started really around 2005 and became kind of a big thing then, and then, like, the the next big moment, at least if I had to argue for it, uh, is Serial, when Serial becomes such a big deal, if you remember that. Um, that first season, which was game-changing. Um, it's Podcasting is inherently diverse. I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had around uh, political podcasts. Um, I think I've seen some people within the industry talk about how there was kind of a boom of at least left-leaning podcasts uh, around 2016, interestingly enough, with, say, Pod Save America, if you're familiar with them, uh, 538. Uh, also came around the same time, uh, but I mean, we, that wasn't the first time we had a political podcast. In contrast, you also had the right leaning, but they were, you know, right. The right has had a very strong history of talk radio, for good or for ill, and that that is a fascinating conversation in itself. As for Joe Rogan, the most interesting thing I find about him um, is. So the first thing is that he is very approachable. Um, he channels a energy of conversation that at least can feel intelligent for those who say aren't history nerds, um, where they can engage with things such as, oh, here's what's going on today, or here's the crazy thing, or let's compare whether a dolphin could beat a bear in a fight. And he, he has this energy of approachability that makes him really accessible. Um, one of the reasons I think he gets more attention beyond just his own numbers is the fact that he chooses to bring on people who might be uh, controversial. I know a lot of people got really mad at him back when he brought uh, Alex Jones uh, from Infowars and all of his crazy antics and gave him a platform. But that kind of... like He's kind of engaging and allowing people to engage with these conversations, sometimes so- mostly in a softball manner, but it's like if you got together with friends in an actual community um to talk about whatever was going on and like he just has that vibe or you just you could hang with him particularly if you are uh more masculine in nature and you're like no i wouldn't spend my time listening to uh three or four journalists from new york talk about uh polling numbers but i'll listen to this guy talk about uh news events and dolphins and all sorts of interestingness and just there's a joy and a sense of community of being there that a lot of people I think find value in Joe Rogan. You you happen to bring up an interesting point that I also wonder about. We were discussing before the um, the the death of local newspapers and how and you and you notice how everything seems to get sucked up into uh, New York, D.C., L.A. 
Has podcasting in any way helped that spread out more across the country, or is that also overwhelmingly concentrated in, uh, in like uh, the tradi- already traditional media centers? Because you'd think, at least in theory, you have an internet connection, you have a microphone, uh, you can start a podcast even if you live in the middle of nowhere, or maybe not. That is actually a really interesting question. Uh, I'll admit, I have, I would love, I have not seen anyone do like really extensive research on that. What I think we do see with podcasts, though, um, so uh, by contrast, if you talk about say um, YouTube, which that we could do a whole bloody podcast on YouTube, um, is how a lot of the people who try, we may yet, uh, if you want to, um, if you if you just kind of step. Uh, if you look at the creators who are there, most of them eventually learn that if they want to become business successful, there's a lot of value in moving to uh, California because that's where all the companies are, the agencies are. Just building a brand in the name's a lot easier there. Podcasting, in a sense, has, I think, resisted that when it comes to, say, the independent creators. Um, now, if you look at the top shows right now, say on app, uh, iTunes, a lot of it is controlled by major media companies. So, you know, one of the larger news podcasts is The Daily by New York Times. So, of course, that's in New York. Um, Joe Rogan, I think, is in California. Um, but there's not like a uh, a hub or a uh, mecca of podcasting in America that doesn't just correlate or wrap around other traditional media. And... I think, but that's a lot because it's been podcasting has been corporatized in the last four to six years. I think uh, where really they're like, oh yeah, we can make a lot of money with this. Before then, it was more spread out. I think particularly when it was just uh, local creators learning how to do this and how to spread it and how it um, wasn't getting as much attention. Um, and so I think, like, the origins of it definitely are more vast, and I think it definitely is a lot easier. I mean, the fact that we're just doing this right now says a lot, but I don't think that there's going to be a hub for that. It's just going to be kind of spread out or go where I think most other media outlets go, unless we see a significant shift in the next five to ten years where uh, news outlets uh, lose value in creating podcasts. And let's say that news outlets do lose value in creating podcasts. What do you think are the? I'm not going to ask you to predict the future because that's for you know, that's uh, that's pointless. But what what do you think are the likely possibilities if that happens? I think so. I think a lot of that would correlate um, with questions of I guess what would maintain interest. So news, understandably, is one of the more popular. Uh, topics that you'll find a lot of people as well as uh, self-development um, and so I think I think a lot of it would relate you could see either it going super niche in the sense of you develop an interest so uh, I live in Indiana I might listen to shows more related to uh, Indiana related content but you could also see it evolving in the sense of more niche interest whether it's primarily gaming uh Dungeons and Dragons, or if you want to go more into crocheting, I think you would. I don't think you'll ever see a physical change because there's not enough of incentive, particularly as I think um, this work from home mentality that has sort of developed with uh, 
uh, the pandemic, and I think it's just people are realizing, like, hey, wait a second, I don't need to be in my office, uh, so that becomes more of a realized and acceptable approach to uh, working. All right. Well, so while we're on the subject of the future, what are your plans for the future uh, in terms of uh, university and uh, studying tech? So, uh, right now, I am on my second year of uh, at Ball State currently. I'm trying to wrap up a uh, getting my master's of sociology. I am doing it by studying a topic, at least of common interest between you and me, Avi, uh, that of, con- of conservative influence, I think, on college students. Uh, through YouTube is a primary is just something of very much interest to me. Uh, as for that, I'm kind of finishing it. Unfortunately, I decided to start my master's degree on the year we we had a pandemic. So I won't <laughs> lie, I have I would love to jump just straight back into working more uh, full time in the press rather than solely as a freelancer, which is what I primarily do. Um, but I'm really scared for the job market right now, so I'm not. I don't even know, man. Ah, that's entirely understandable. Um, and it's interesting that you you bring you bring that up because I remember in the 2000s it felt like I mean, agree or disagree on the content. It felt like when it came to using YouTube operations like PragerU and especially many libertarian channels had very effective uh, in terms of keeping their message succinct uh, um, uh, many lectures uh, for getting their message across. A lot of people praised uh, Barack Obama's uh, organizing campaigns and that was genuinely impressive but the right also got a lot of uh, uh, stuff uh, that was very interesting so I'd be very curious to see uh, your research when you're done. Oh. uh, To see absolutely i'm hoping to at least get somewhere public that i can do with that i'm not sure how that works completely with thesis but i think i i do want this research to at least offer a starting point for a conversation so well i look forward to seeing it chris thank you very much for coming on this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation absolutely thank you for having me i do appreciate it